If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Ann Newberger, President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology. She's the first person to serve in this new post, which Biden created in recognition of the growing importance of cybersecurity. Newberger started her career in the private sector before moving to the Department of Defense and the National Security Agency, where she served for more than a decade. These days, in the midst of a Russian invasion of Ukraine that has strained superpower relations and has us teetering on the brink of global conflict, Newberger has been busy. After all, it's her job to prevent a full-on cyber war and to prepare for a potential one. And welcome to Sway. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you for having me. So let's start with Ukraine and the cyber situation there. Can you lay out what cyber attacks the Russians have launched against Ukraine so far? And how effective have those attacks been? So, Kara, as we know, the Russians have used really cyber attacks to coerce, undermine, and destabilize countries in the past. And in that context, what we've observed in Ukraine has been both getting access for intelligence purposes. So we see Russians having access to a broad range of Ukrainian national security type of targets, as well as access to some targets that could be used for disruptive purposes, whether those are water systems or power systems. What we've observed in practice has been some DDoS attacks, as well as some additional um, destructive type attacks as well. All right. So explain what a DDoS attack would do. In a DDoS attack, an attacker compromises large numbers of systems to send large amounts of traffic to a website or a network and essentially overwhelm that website or network because it's getting too many requests to serve information than it can handle. So it's essentially to glop up a system, right? Yes. There are many ways to defend against it. And in fact, even as DDoS attacks have grown larger and larger, they're often less and less successful because from a defense perspective, you know, there's huge amounts of resilience and traffic in the internet and firms that provide DDoS protection services can reroute traffic or essentially balance it across a broader set of pipes to prevent it successfully taking a website or system offline. And specifically, um, have they focused in on any one thing? And they're using their own government efforts and also contractors, essentially, um, that they have used in the past, correct? Yes. So the Russian government uses a contractor base as well. And they're targeting specific sectors, largely infrastructure sectors. So your banks, Ministry of Defense and others, as you saw with those initial um, DDoS attacks, those were really not successful. The Ukrainians really brought back up those websites and networks in a short time. Those were accompanied by, in some cases, wiper attacks that seek to wipe the data in a network, have a longer term impact on the actual operations of a given entity. And... The Ukrainians work to recover from those as well, and those also appear to have had a more minimal impact. 
So the Ukrainians are also very adept at digital. They've been one of the the big areas of programmers and everything else, and they've been building up their cybersecurity and just cyber talents in general, correct? Exactly. As you said, it all starts with people, and Ukraine has a good technology pace. Um, but that's really an independent private sector commercial base. Obviously, in the best government cybersecurity programs, you have a way to attract and retain that talent. That's a, a big effort in every country around the world. So Ukraine has a good private sector. On the government side, you know, they've really worked to improve cybersecurity in the last number of years. But it's far harder to defend than to attack. And the Russians do have a very capable cyber offense program. And one of the things they've often people have described Ukraine to me as the place the Russians test things and then they move them to a broader, whether it's the U.S. or anywhere else. We see a number of countries with offensive programs try to test their capabilities in countries with weaker defenses. They get a chance to see how it works. They get a chance to see any side effects. So that is something that we've observed. Multiple countries do, essentially testing, as you say, in areas where they think they can get results without being caught. Right. And some experts, though, expected a Russian attack to take out Ukraine's electrical grid. They did that in 2015. Why haven't they done this yet? It may be a question of not yet or they're incapable of doing it. What is your assessment? So you've seen a lot of people have a lot of different views about that. On the one hand, I always start with defense. Ukraine has really made improvements in the security of its electricity grid and in really improving the resilience of that grid. Um, the U.S. has had a program for a number of years, working virtually as well as in person to support those efforts, building on essentially separating elements of the grid to build out that resilience. So everything always starts with defense because a stronger defense can be very effective. And then there could be many reasons why the Russians may have determined not to conduct a full-out destructive attack. In talking with the Ukrainian cyber defense team, because we talk with them frequently, they have described you know, ongoing cyber attacks against the grid, which they believe they've countered and managed. On the offense side, it could well be that you know the Russians want to overtake and run Ukraine, and they also want to ensure that the people needed to operate stay as well. So it could be that one reason was that a full-out destructive attack would be counter to the broader plan of taking over the country and continuing to operate services. But that's all conjecture. Um, at this time. So what's the most looming offensive threat that you see? Against Ukraine? Yes. Um, typically, one of the things in the in this business I learn is to never get into hypotheticals. I think we are watching closely for disruptive or destructive attacks and ensuring that as quickly as those can be identified, they can be blocked, not only in Ukraine, but blocked from spreading um, whether unintentionally or intentionally. But isn't hypothetical the point, is doing strategy around what could happen? I mean, the governments do that all the time, and presumably in cyber attacks, they do that. So what would you think are their most likely things? It's a really good point, because the best way to prepare is to come up with scenarios and say, let's exercise against them. So the three scenarios we've used in our both internal government discussions and discussions with our colleagues at NATO, with the European Union, and certainly with our Ukrainian colleagues has been, first, a potential disruptive attack against Ukraine? And how do we virtually ensure that we can provide incident response support to recover services quickly? The second would be a scenario akin to what we saw with NAPETCHA in 2017, where a Russian cyber attack against Ukraine spread and ended up having billions of dollars of impact around the world. Um, and then finally, 
a potential disruptive attack against our European colleagues or the U.S. in response to sanctions. And we use those to exercise really our three-part strategy, which is first above all hardened systems because at their root, technology is full of vulnerabilities. And those are the ones that less capable all the way through to really capable actors leverage. Second, warn. Let's create a sense of urgency in the private sector to do the kinds of things that do have impact, locking digital doors, putting on a digital alarm system. And then finally, ensure that we make it harder for attackers to conduct disruptive operations, whether that is disrupting infrastructure and more sensitive operations that I won't get into here. But that three-part strategy, we've been exercising it regularly against the scenarios we've talked about to ensure we're as prepared as we can be. Right. So you've been working with NATO. What happened in the meetings you've been having with NATO officials? Because you were out in Warsaw in early February making the rounds anticipating this. So I went to NATO to address the North Atlantic Council, which is the permanent representatives of NATO countries, to talk about the need to build on the work NATO has done to outline policy, to put in place practices, how we do incident response together, how we have you know, virtual teams who can provide support, how we ensure that we can call out irresponsible state behavior in cyberspace, do attribution quickly, because that's the best way to really implement the international norms that exist, is by calling out behavior and having consequences when those are breached. So those were the conversations, and we're making steady progress. So that, those were really the purposes of the visit, to have those conversations offer the U.S., given all the work we've done, bring that to the group, invite others to join as well, and move forward to build out the muscle underneath the larger picture right. policy. We're operating in real time here, and the Secretary of State Blinken reiterated Article 5 of the NATO alliance, saying that, quote, an attack on one is an attack against all. Is he talking about just ground attacks or cyber too? He's talking about both. Clearly, the policy and doctrine around ground attacks has been built over the last 70 years. The work around cyber is still newer. And to your point, how we do collective cyber defense, how we determine what is a significant attack, what merits response, how do we ensure that we can deter those attacks as a community of countries? Because it's true. In a global communications environment, a threat against one is a threat against all. So is NATO aligned uh, with a red line when it comes to Russian cyber attacks now? Because we're already seeing phishing, we're seeing all kinds of attacks all over uh, from Belarus and from other places, for example. As you know, attacks one attack is not equal to another attack. In fact, in the United States, after the series of ransomware attacks last spring, we put together a consequence assessment framework to ensure that we could explain to the American people, why a ransomware attack against a gas station was very different from a ransomware attack against a colonial pipeline that disrupted critical services along the eastern seaboard for a number of days. So really the consequence of an attack is how we measure that. And there is definitely growing alignment on having a common methodology to assess those attacks and then to assess what one does about it from a, most importantly, response and recovery as well as an attribution and consequences. So it's sort of like if you you blow a stop sign versus, you know, racing down a highway drunk or something like that. Yes. So something like a phishing attack that's being reported from Belarus into Ukraine, but also into Poland, which is a member of NATO. How do you then determine those? Because this is a wide, as I said, landscape of attack. Does that trip a red line? It doesn't. You know, we would look at phishing and tell the average user, come on, phishing's been going around for 10 years. Are you still clicking on that link? 
So phishing matters more on the cybersecurity side because it's often the biggest first step in compromising a system. But in terms of the longer consequences that we would say is something that we need to address, I think on the spectrum of defense to offense, it's well on the defense side. Let's be more effective. Let's build tech to alert on this more, et cetera. So the U.S. is working directly with Ukraine on cybersecurity, correct? You're working yes. directly with them. Mm-hmm. Um, who have you been talking to there? And and can you describe some of these conversations and what you're talking about? It could range from dropping Wi-Fi hotspots to meddling in Russian disinformation uh, or doing it counter to them? What specifically are you helping them with? So there's a range of work, as you noted, in terms of helping Ukraine augment their defense. So there's the strategic things with regard to helping increase, you know, their DDoS protection services. When they were under significant DDoS attacks, they said, you know, it would be helpful for us to have to increase that. And, you know, there were introductions and connections made to ensure that they had what they needed. It could be ensuring that, you know, they have adequate endpoint protection licenses in place. I'll explain endpoint protection um, in our homes. You know, there's an alert on every window and every door so that if there's an intruder, you know, that trips the alarm to say there's somebody here. So endpoint protection in many ways is the same thing. So it's tech that's running on various PCs, servers, et cetera, connected devices and looking for anomalous behavior and then alerting to a security operations center to say something might not be right here. And it really is important because when you have global cybersecurity firms running protection on billions of endpoints, when they see a potential anomalous activity, they can bring that back, determine quickly if it is something significant, and then push out defenses to block that capability. You are helping them with that, correct? Exactly. Ensuring that they have adequate that, rolling that out, et cetera. And then, of course, it's more of the technical support. How do you think about grid resilience? You know, if there was an attack that overcame the defenses, additional capacity to help them respond to that. What about dropping Wi-Fi hotspots. I mean, we'll get to Elon Musk in a second, but or helping them do misinformation or disinformation or good information that gets into Russia. Are we helping them with that? So I think you've certainly seen the private sector step up on the satellite communication side and in a whole range of areas. And the Ukrainians seem to certainly be very effective in communicating their message on their own. Is the U.S. government helping them with this? They've been very effective in communicating their message on their own. You know, when there are requests for support, we are happy to support. But I think certainly Ukrainian communications has very much been product of their own. You've seen many U.S. government officials getting out there, Kara, and talking about the message. You've certainly seen the active efforts by the U.S. government to declassify and share intelligence as part of raising awareness about what the Russians are planning to do and what the Russians are doing as part of their invasion of Ukraine and So certainly communications has been a real focus for us. Can you talk about the declassification? Because I think a lot of people are looking at this as an important use of cyber capabilities as an offense. Talk about what that means, what happened and why you did it this way. You know, at a very high level, President Biden was is very committed to he's talked a lot about the power of diplomacy and he's talked a lot about the power of allies. And we realize that a big part of getting our allies on board in our efforts to ward off a potential Russian invasion has been ensuring that we're sharing context, ensuring that we're sharing information so they can come to very similar judgments or at least assess it based on a similar basis of information. 
and ensure that to the extent we can remove a potential Russian use of a pretext by sharing information, both with our allies and partners in quiet channels, as well as in public channels, we sought to do both, hold off a war and keep an alliance together so that we could respond as one voice as a global community, saying that this, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was uncalled for and a significant risk to the international norms that our our global world relies on. A lot of intelligence has usually been kept tight, much more tight than what is happening now. And obviously, you have a lot more ability to spread it all around in a different way. But it seems like information sharing is at an all-time high, including with the private sector, with things like declassification. You've helped ease the way for more private sector support of Ukraine, for example, helping broker information sharing between Microsoft Ukraine and other governments. That was after Microsoft discovered malware aimed at Ukraine's government ministries. Can you talk about this, sort of an idea of how that happened, how you're working with the private sector? Absolutely. So the private sector has significant visibility into cyber threats and, even more importantly, significant capability to block them. And as such, you know, cyber companies around the world, software and tech companies around the world are on the front lines of fighting cyber attacks. And governments around the world are thinking through the most effective ways to partner, to share intelligence information about potential cyber attacks, and to really work closely with the private sector. Back in November, as you know, the, we were began focusing on this, the president gave us instructions to work quickly to really drive domestic cyber resilience and obviously work very closely with partners and allies to help them as well. So we've been in discussions with private sector firms to say, if you see any disruptive or destructive activity, we're very interested in learning about that because we very quickly want to counter it. So, you know, you asked me about the particular instance Wednesday evening when Microsoft first alerted to destructive malware on Ukrainian networks. Based on those instructions, they quickly alerted us. We had a conversation around what could be done to categorize the malware. So kind of when you think of a police report, when the police say, well, 45-year-old male dressed in a gray cap, etc. So how do you alert on that from a technical way with regard to destructive malware? And then ensuring they were connected to the cyber defenders in multiple countries around the world so that those countries could take advantage of the techniques Microsoft had come up with to block that destructive malware. And I think We've seen a range of of companies really stepping up in that way. You saw the Washington Post article of companies stepping up to offer free cybersecurity services in multiple sectors in the U.S., those sectors that really don't have minimum mandates and need that added resilience in the same way. You mentioned Starlink stepping up in terms of satellite communication. So we're seeing a range of companies saying, we want to help. Elon was actually communicating with Ukraine's top leaders on Twitter about this, which was fascinating to see. Um, He's giving Ukraine connectivity via Starlink, which is basically satellite spots to enable voice calling and other internet access that might be cut off and giving them units along this. Isn't this something the U.S. government should be doing? Or do you think it's just impossible now in this world where these companies are so powerful and have so much information in the way the government used to only have, I think, I think it's pretty fair to say these companies are as powerful as governments in terms of information that they they hold. Is that the right way to do it through these private sector? You sort of alluded to that earlier. It's an interesting question and one that I think will play out in the coming weeks and one we need to reflect on carefully. On the one hand, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has prompted many to raise their hand and say, how can I help? 
How can I prevent this loss of life? How can I prevent this unnecessary carnage? And providing defensive capabilities to enable communications, to enable people to flee the, a conflict is very much something that we fully support. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, we see hacktivists, you know, talking about conducting disruptive attacks. And that is something we are concerned about, both because communications are connected and because there are potential, they can lead to potential escalations that the individuals who are saying, hey, this seems something I want to do, something important to do, may not be thinking about the larger context and the larger framework. So I think as we look at that spectrum of activity, there are some that we say on the defensive side, absolutely do so. And there are some that are more concerning to us that we're thinking about what is the appropriate way to address that. Meaning you don't want people just to go rogue, presumably, correct? Obviously. We'll be back in a minute. By the way, you can use that minute to leave a comment about your thoughts on this episode. Just visit nytimes.com slash sway. More with Ann Newberger after the break. This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. You were around for Edward Snowden. You were working in the security sector. Has that relationship between Silicon Valley and the government been repaired from your perspective? It's matured significantly. I think it's a very different relationship, Kara, than it was in you know June of 2013 when the Snowden uh, media leaks began. And I think for a few reasons. One is the intelligence community learned, particularly NSA learned, that the model of operating as a black box couldn't work in the current environment. And that there needed to be active sharing of the values and the laws and policies that essentially guide American intelligence collection, particularly signals intelligence collection, um, where there are very strict rules around domestic and foreign. And the second part is talking about it. So, you know, NSA hired a civil liberties and privacy officer. And having worked at the agency, I can say she was actively included in discussions, actively played a role in saying, 
is that particular collection necessary? Particularly in a world where there are transnational threats, threats that cross borders, think CT, think cyber, think trafficking in women and weapons. The, in a global communications environment, you know, translating that to both protect civil liberties and privacy and also be effective in tracking those threats takes real work and real operational um, implementations. And having a civil liberties and privacy officer in those discussions, expressing that view, debating those views, really made a difference in the culture of NSA and the broader intelligence community. And to your core point, which was, has a relationship been repaired? You know, companies saw that working with the U.S. government to combat threats was very much in line with shared values and shared principles. Now, some people don't trust either of you, you know, of didn't course. want government to have all this information. And now we have a bunch of un- unregulated and unaccountable giant companies running everything. Mandiant bought by Google, for example. I, neither of us know what's happening. Maybe you do. I don't. Um, is this the only way to do it? Because if you have these companies that are unaccountable, um, having someone like Facebook or Microsoft or Google tell you what to police could be problematic. How do you protect against that? What do you mean by tell us what to police? Meaning they're telling us where the problems are. How do, you know, I I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist, but you worry about that these companies have great power over information in a very different way than government does. Absolutely. And I think we'd make a distinction between social media companies and those issues related to misinformation and disinformation and areas related to countering cyber threats which are more, we look at and we see, you know, malicious activity. That's, I think that's a clearer black and white. But to your point, there's certainly, um, as we look at the public-private relationships, looking at the different kinds of companies, looking at the way we marry up civil liberties and privacy and countering threats varies based on what kind of company it is and what are we talking about. Right. So if it's something like attacking a grid, everyone can agree, let's not have that happen and work together. But are people in the government worried about the power of these companies being like countries of their own? I mean, any of them are the most valuable companies in the world and they have the most information, maybe not more than the federal government, I'm not sure, but they certainly have a lot and in real time as people move around the globe. Is that something you think about it as you're cooperating with them? So it's You know, you've heard the administration talk about our focus on ensuring this adequate competition, Mm -hmm. um, ensuring that companies that are very large can squeeze out smaller players. And you've certainly seen the administration's focus and concern about disinformation. We've seen that with regard to topics as varied as COVID through um, information in more of the international messaging space, as we've observed in Russia and Ukraine. So it's certainly an area that we're watching closely. Watching closely. Okay. Because, you know, we have a massive security problem because we do allow these companies to operate rather freely in this country because capitalism. Are you expecting retaliation from Russia against the U.S. in the cyber realm for the sanctions or providing weapons? And what do you expect that would look like? What's our biggest vulnerability? So our job is to prepare. From CISA to the EPA to the Department of Treasury to the Department of Energy, they've been pulling together their sectors and sharing both strategic intelligence to say there's no credible threats at this time. However, given the geopolitical environment, double down on your security. Lock your digital doors, exercise your incident response plan, bring together your leadership teams and say, if there was a disruption in our businesses, how would we recover quickly? And we've had broad releases of technical indicators that are techniques Russia has used in the past. Um, to compromise systems, to compromise power systems. So there's been extensive and regular 
information sharing in that way. So you're assuming, you're assuming an attack. One one assumes the attack, whether it's coming or not, correct? One prepares for an attack. Okay, I'm assuming one, if you don't mind. Um, Have you seen an uptick in Russian cyber probing against the U.S. since the beginning of their invasion? We see probing all the time. I think you've probably seen the Department of Defense. Their numbers always change, but they talk about hundreds of millions of probes regularly. That's part of, you know, it's part of cyberspace. More from Russia of late? I think overall, continuing to be large numbers of probing, I wouldn't call out any one entity. Okay. Can we do a lightning round of some recent attacks we've seen and tell me whether we know them to be Russian or not? The NVIDIA attack, hackers leaked chipmakers' proprietary data online. This coincided with the first week of the invasion and people thought it's Russian. It wasn't. Is that correct? Um, I believe at the current time, and I'll defer to the FBI, we believe that's a criminal ransomware attack. Okay. There was some reporting on an attack targeting U.S. natural gas suppliers. The reporting is still unfolding, but Bloomberg noted in mid-February, hackers gained access to more than 100 computers belonging to current and former employees of 21 major energy companies, including Chevron. Do you think Russia is behind these attacks? That's one that I don't really, as you say, it's still unfolding. We're still watching that one closely. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the solar winds attack, which I do know you know a lot about, mm-hmm. which opened a backdoor into American companies like Microsoft and Intel, and then more backdoors and windows and closing doors, et cetera. Um, I'm just using those as metaphors, um, as well as multiple U.S. government agencies, including parts of the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, the Treasury, the National Nuclear Security Administration. Now, the solar winds attack did have Russian fingerprints, and it was a big deal. You were central to that. You were brought in to pull it all together. Can you talk a little bit about what has happened since then? Mm-hmm. Um, you noted it well, right? The administration began and SolarWinds was one where the president made clear he wanted to see it addressed. You know, we really worked across the federal government to identify every agency that was compromised and lay out guidelines, the things they needed to do to come back and tell us. What allowed SolarWinds to be compromised was the way they built and deployed software. So now there are software security standards for all technology, all software the U.S. government buys, really originated in a core lesson learned we had in SolarWinds. We were concerned about the breadth of access. It provided the SVR, one of Russia's intelligence agencies, and the potential to use that access for follow-on disruptive activity, which is why we treated it as more than merely an intelligence collection effort. Right. Someone called it the big cicada to me. I don't know. It was kind of interesting. There were cicadas at the time, I guess. I'm I'm going to reflect on that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Think about it. They were just sitting there. They're they're there, but we don't know where they are. Um, Biden responded, SolarWinds, by sanctioning Russia. I think the big question is, um, was it enough of a response or should he have retaliated with a cyber attack? Now, you may well have that we don't know of, but was that enough to deter them? So, As we look at the range of cyber activity, we look at intelligence collection, espionage, which capable countries do, um, particularly in cyber because we're such digitized societies. And then we look at potential disruptive and destructive activity. And, you know, the framework that President Biden has very much used, both for solar winds and I'll point to also Colonial and JBS, because there, as you know, those were disruptive attacks against critical services. And he engaged personally with President Putin and said, Any disruptive attack that occurs from Russian IP space, even if it is criminal activity, which those attacks were certainly criminal ransomware activity, will be treated as a national security incident. And the president, as you know, both conveyed that publicly and privately and established this experts group. So uh, a technical level exchange between the U.S. and Russia to put in place the more 
practical information sharing, to ensure that we were discussing issues of concern and cyber related to ransomware in that way as well. So a warning, a warning exactly. to Putin. But, but also putting in place the practical exchange of information and of people talking as part of his principle of, you know, engage from a diplomatic perspective, put in place the rules and work to then enforce them. If we see activity coming from within Russian networks, even if they're criminal, we will provide that information to you and we expect you to act. Mm-hmm. So in the case of this unfolding hack targeting employees at natural gas suppliers, that would be a big deal, correct? Because according to Bloomberg, the chief executive of Resecurity, which is a firm that discovered the attacks that he believed the attack was carried out by state-sponsored actors. Do you agree with this or you don't know enough yet? And if it was, and it was Russia, is there a stronger response? I don't know enough about that incident, but I would say we'll look across the spectrum I talked about, which is, was it a compromise for intelligence collection purposes Was there a disruptive impact of some way? And that will be how we characterize the significance with which we look at that. But again, I don't know much about that particular incident at this time. But uh, presumably you're looking into it, especially if it's a Russian-based one. It would seem they would have the interest in doing something like that, given the, the oil sanctions that were just put in place. Across the U.S. government, when an incident occurs, whether FBI, you know, usually FBI will be first looking at that, giving us their characterization, as well as the intelligence community giving us their picture of it as well. We bring that together rapidly to form a view of what's occurred. Are you worried about the escalation leading to more escalation? Is that obviously something you think about? Or do you feel sometimes it's okay to escalate if you feel you have a higher, a more of ability to protect yourself and also attack with effectiveness? So first and above all, you know, noting the warning to make clear the kinds of activities that we take seriously and will react to. You know, the president often says big nations don't bluff. We have to have the credibility to say that we, and the president has made clear that we will respond, but we always look carefully to say we want to respond to show the significance with which we view what occurred, but also we don't want to escalate a given incident because our goal is instead managing that and returning to a safe, secure, and interoperable cyberspace that we can all benefit from. Mm-hmm. Meaning globally. Mm-hmm. So let, in, in that way, there's a lot of proposals to universalize a lot of these things. There's non-proliferation treaties. There's treaties on everything, on chemicals. They're not always paid mind to, but they're there. How come there has not been a global cyber, I guess, detente? I don't know how to put it, across nations. So there are actually a few. Um, I'll mention a couple. And then I think the key piece we really need to do is implement them. Um, One is very much in place and implemented, which is the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime that brings together countries and is actively viewed as effective in sharing information around cybercrime and working to address that. The second one is a UN group of governmental experts that outlines a broad set of voluntary international norms for peacetime in cyberspace. Those include not attacking critical infrastructure. Those include allowing computer emergency response teams to work effectively and cooperatively. And one of the reasons, and before I go there, the U.S. government has put a lot of work into outlining responsible state behavior in cyberspace and in advocating with partners and at the U.N. for what that responsible behavior is. And partially, one core reason that we work to quickly attribute activity um, when irresponsible state behavior exists, attribute it with as many international partners as we can, is working to implement those 
that UN governmental group of experts norms and show that there are consequences for violating those norms. Right. So attribution is important. Obviously, we can see the invasion. Everyone can see it on their telephones. They can see it on cable news. They can see it everywhere. You can't see a lot of this stuff. So it makes it harder and therefore allows the Russians to operate in the shadows. How difficult is that? Because when you make attributions, people are like, oh, the government's lying. Like, this isn't Russia. And they use that very effectively. Russia uses that ability to move in and out of the shadows pretty effectively in the way they can't in a physical world. You raise a really core issue, which is attribution is important. And having the technical basis for that attribution is important to show the work. We all took math classes where we had to show the work. Now, some of that work can take a long time, but then you've lost the window to impose consequences in some way, which is so important to reinforcing those norms. So you may have seen, we rapidly called out, for example, that Russia was behind the DDoS activity against Ukrainian banks for just that reason, because we said we need to do it quickly and we need to show our technical work, which we did. But one of the efforts that we have underway with a number of partners is working to say, how do we quickly do the technical attribution? Then countries may make different political decisions about whether they choose to call out another country online. But we should be able to get to that technical attribution with the shared information we all have about a given attack very quickly. So here it is, believe it or not. If you want to enforce it, you can or not, for example. Yes. I mean, here it is. And here is the technical basis for it. And then if you choose to be part of the group that's seeking to call it out, attribute it as part of enforcing norms, we welcome you because the more voices doing that together, the more effective we all are. Right. Glenn Gerstel, a former general counsel of the NSA, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times just this week headline, I've dealt with foreign cyber attacks. America isn't ready for what's coming, which is sort of a typical headline. Um, he argues that there's a specific policy fix that we could make here to have a central cyber regulator. This is something lots of people I interview talk about this. I think it's a non-starter. It's been going on forever to have an information agency or a center. Now, the argument is that the Defense Department is doing this. The National Cyber Command is doing this. The SCC is doing this. The FBI is doing this. Do you think there should be a central organizer to this? So Glenn was a close colleague of mine at NSA, and I'll share with you what I shared with him as we talked about it over the weekend. So first, every sector looks different. And I firmly believe that every sector, we need to have minimum standards in place, minimum practices in place, like exercise your incident response plan, um, patch within a certain time frame. But aligning that cyber regulation within the regulatory model of each sector is the more effective approach. So the way I see it is we, from a you know overall White House perspective, will set policy on here's what every sector has to have. And then we look to sector risk management agencies, treasury for banks, EPA for water, energy for that sector to say, how do you best enforce that within the environment you're in? You know, if you ask me today, what is the most important thing we need to do? It's ensure that each of those sectors has the authorities to mandate those minimum standards. But in summary, I think you and I are very much in the same place that thinking that there's one approach is actually not the model I think that would be most implementable or most effective over time. So should the government pass these laws to force companies to report cyber attacks to the government? That's been something that was an issue in SolarWinds that you're lucky they did so. Sometimes people don't report ransomware attacks, as you know. They just pay them. Should there be a, gov a requirement to tell the government that it's happening? There should be for two reasons. 
First, to enable us to learn from the techniques that were used to better protect in the future. And second, to ensure we get a picture of what domestic resilience is and uh, what our policy gaps are. But I'll note that's one half of what we need. The other half is the foundational resilience in tech and an implementation of tech to be as secure as we need to be. We didn't address China here, but you were involved in efforts to assess the threat of TikTok during the Trump administration. I know that something you couldn't talk about, though I tried to get you to talk to me about it. Could you assess the Chinese threat right now and about their efforts across a spectrum of software, hardware, communications infrastructure? Apple announced new iPhones. Should we still be making our critical products like phones there? So we certainly see China seeking to compete with the U.S. in technology and in particular areas of technology and using a range of ways to do so. Um, So the U.S. government views ensuring that the U.S. continues to be a leader in technology and innovation as a core priority. So across the spectrum of tech, from core components of tech like microelectronics, all the way through to core presence in tech, like data centers, through data itself, which was the root of the TikTok question, and how broad amounts of data could be used to coerce or undermine a population, our policies with regard to our technology competition with China need to cross all of those. Are you more nervous about Putin or Xi? We are concerned about both and certainly about the growing alliance and partnership between the two. But more importantly, both represent an authoritarian model that we believe that the U.S. and Western model of open democratic societies, both in our public discourse, as well as in our technology, is something that we're proud of. And we believe it can and will compete for many years to come. Well, then making a nation cyberproof is going to be a very big job, I think. making it I think it's impossible on some level. But can I ask you one final question? What can average people do? Regular people who are like, I got my iPhone made in China. I've got this. I'm on this thing. I don't know who has what. What is the most important thing, if you had to pick, that average consumers who are listening to this need to think about? Kara, thank you so much for asking me that question. I would say two things. One is patch systems quickly. You know, in some ways it's easier. iPhone, the patch is pushed. You do that quickly because technology today is complex. It's often built with vulnerabilities. And we see again and again adversaries leveraging vulnerabilities in tech where a patch has been available for a year or two or three years. And that seems like, let's do that quickly. The second thing is passwords are absolutely dead, partially because we've reused the same passwords or because computers and uh, have gotten better and better. So the passwords need to be really long to resist a brute force attack. So use multi-factor authentication. Use a second factor beyond a password to help prove that it's you. So those are the two things I would say consumers can do to be safer online. Actually, there's a third, which is for data that's most important to you, your bank records, your health records. Keep a backup copy that's disconnected from the internet for you so that in case something happens, you have that available and you can quickly recover. All right. Those are very good things. You could also just put down your phone. (laughs) No one's doing that. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And good luck uh, with all. You're going to be very busy over the next year or so, I suspect. Thank you so much, Kara. It's so good to meet and talk. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. 
with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Buster, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, and you don't even need multi-factor authentication, but for the love of God, put it on all the rest of the stuff you use. Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.